Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I find it hard to adjust my mind to a hurling final taking place in July. All-Ireland Sundays will be forever associated with September inside my head. Back then it coincided with a return to school after endless days of freedom. As we trudged to our classrooms, swallows eyed us from their serried perches along the overhead wires. The departing birds fidgeted, impatient for flight ahead of darkening days. Our approach to a fresh school year and new teachers carried similar apprehension. We made promises to ourselves, paired the tops of our pencils into needle points and fitted wallpaper-covered books into satchels smelling of new leather. The rich smell would soon be replaced by rancid milk, pencil shavings and overlooked banana peel. But one highlight brightened those transitional days and distracted from our anxiety, the All-Ireland Hurling Final. After all, were we not Kilkenny boys and by divine right expecting our county to be present in full black and amber glory at the final? In the way that memory sometimes tricks us into believing that all those summer days of childhood were filled with sunshine and light, in my recollection Kilkenny always competed on those September Sundays in Croke Park. Of course, similar to the memory of fine weather, GAA statistics demonstrate that this could not have been the case. But to us, our county players were immortals carved from stone carved, in fact, from the famous black marble quarried alongside the banks of the Nore, the same stone that gave fame to the marble city. It is understood that on the ground atop this quarry, on the 22nd of March in 1650, Oliver Cromwell stood and trained the sights of his cannon on the city walls. The Royalist defenders initially repulsed Cromwell's new model army, However, the onslaught lasted for six full days and the defenders were eventually overwhelmed by superior numbers and better artillery. Others will set their sights on Kilkenny today at Croke Park. Those intentions may not be so bloody, but nonetheless will be as passionately ambitious. As with Cromwell, no quarter will be expected and no quarter will be given. I will be captive as I follow the ebb and flow of the game through the shell of my ears, similar to the way I might be captivated by tidal surf on a storm-beset beach. I expect to be as transfixed as the fossilised seashells embedded deep in black Kilkenny marble. I grew up with radio. In the decades before GAA Go and smartphone live streaming, it was radio that kept me in touch with Croke Park. At a time when I was living in the heart of London's swinging 60s, I recall that same ebb and flow of sound as I leaned into a telephone pole in some drought-blasted North London park. I squashed a transistor radio against my ear, the dial set to home, and the aerial, with the assistance of the pole, struggling to catch the sing-song voice of Michal O'Hare. On afternoons such as those, my thoughts returned to the times when neighbours gathered to listen to the big wireless set in our kitchen. Men with shaving nicks still visible on lean cheekbones, 
colourless Sunday shirt still unblemished. Tea offered and accepted without thanks. Hands receiving the mug, unmindful of the giver, and instead 100 miles away in Croke Park. On a recent visit to Kilkenny, I wished to purchase something to reflect my county's colours. I'd observed twists of two-tone ribbons bedecking suitcases on airport carousels. A useful tool to identify ubiquitous luggage. I contemplated a county jersey, but instead I thought I might like a black and amber woolly hat. It's an item of clothing that could prove useful throughout the year. Strangely enough, the hat I sought was not available in any outlets. One shop did have a creative solution, though. They suggested a black and amber tea cosy. It was proffered at a bargain price. It has slits on opposite sides that are designed to facilitate a handle and a spout. I tried it on, and it fitted nicely. Now, for some reason that I fail to understand, my wife is not too keen on it although I consider it sporting. Today I will listen in while wearing my striped headgear. I have contrived to manoeuvre my ears through the slits so that I miss none of the broadcast. I even believe it might concentrate the mind. It may direct my thoughts to other times and other games and perhaps to September Sundays when the barns were filled with hay, the swallows lined the wires and men of marble ran onto the pitch in Croke Park. Hurling is a game that is lightning fast, ruthless and riveting. Distinctly Irish, it has a long lineage and while the legendary game played by the Fir Bullock and the Tuatha de Danann at the Battle of Moytura might differ significantly from this afternoon's contest in Croke Park, the fundamentals remain the same. The pucking of a ball with a stick from one end of the field to the other with the hope of scoring a goal. From the mythology of Satanta's Puck Fada, the game hurled itself into real time. As Seamus J. King observes, it was legislated for under Brehan Law, where to strike a player a deliberate blow with the hurley was a punishable crime, and legislated against under the statutes of Kilkenny. The statutes sought to remedy a troubling trend of integration among English settlers in Ireland though the official reason given was the violence of that game hurling, from which great evils and maims have arisen. The statute had little effect, and hurling flourished into the 17th and 18th centuries under the new planter class. Termed the golden age of hurling, this was a time when the landed gentry fielded hurling teams and landlords were openly involved as players, trainers and patrons. Moreover, their presence at matches ensured strictly enforced rules. On the 30th of July in 1768, 
Finn's Leinster Journal advertised a grand hurling match to be played between the counties of Kilkenny and Tipperary on the 8th of August at the Fair Green of Erlingford for 20 guineas. Some of the principal gentlemen of both counties are concerned, the journal reported. Teams consisted of 20 or more players and the result depended on who scored the first goal. Return challenges were common, as was the concept of best of three. The prize was a sum of money or a barrel of ale, brought into the field and drunk by the victors on the spot, though the vanquished were not without a share of it too, for the Friendship Cup was passed around. Teams wore distinctive clothing, sashes, belts, caps or ribbons. Hurling served other purposes too, according to Arthur Young, who in his walking tour of Ireland 1776-79 describes a very ancient custom where a number of country neighbours fix upon some young woman that ought, as they think, be married. They also agree upon a young fellow as a husband. This determined, they send to the fair one to inform her that on Sunday she is to be horsed, that is, carried on men's shoulders. She must provide whisky and cider for a treat, as all will pay her a visit after Mass for a hurling match. As soon as she is horsed, the hurling begins, in which the young fellow has the eyes of the company on him. If he comes off conqueror, he is married to the girl. But if another is victorious, he loses her, for she is the prize of the victor. Sometimes, Arthur Young continues, one barony hurls against another for a marriageable girl. In the song Prisun Chlun Mala, the young white boy prisoner laments his fate as his command lies at home warping when next Sunday the patron at home will be keeping and the young active hurlers the field will be sweeping. But it was agrarian societies like the White Boys and the formation of the United Irishmen that hastened the end of landlord patronage of hurling. After the 1798 rebellion, sporting events were discouraged as gatherings were suspected of fomenting sedition. The Act of Union caused many landlords to become absentees. And then the death knell, the Great Famine, when the rural population was decimated by death, eviction and emigration. On an autumn evening in 1851, a young couple, 19-year-old Owen McCarthy, and his bride boarded the boat for England, having been evicted from their home in famine-ravaged Ballygarvan, County Cork. They settled in London, where their son Liam was born in 1853. As a boy, Liam played hurling on Clapham Common, and though not famed as a player, he became fabled as an organiser and father of the London GAA. Closely allied with Sam Maguire and Michael Collins, Liam used his role as chairman of the London County Board to raise funds for both the IRB and St Enda's School. A friend and supporter of Patrick Pierce, it was Liam who in January 1916, with conscription looming in England and plans of a rebellion at home, advised Michael Collins, if you come from Clonakilty, it is obvious where you must go. When it came to the design of what became the All-Ireland Hurling Championship Trophy, 
Liam McCarthy had in mind the ancient Celtic Friendship Cup on Vather or the Mether. Limerick's captain Bob McConkie was the first to raise that cup in 1923. 100 years on will our champions prevail? Or will Kilkenny's feline fighters scratch Limerick's dream of four in a row? One thing's for certain, today's game will be lightning fast, ruthless and riveting. This afternoon, tens of thousands of Limerick supporters will descend on Croke Park, hoping to see our hurling heroes win a fourth All-Ireland title in a row. It's the stuff of dreams. Since this team emerged in 2018 and won Limerick's first All-Ireland title after a gap of 45 years, we've been on a magical journey. And if we manage to beat Kilkenny today, as we did in last year's final, that will be five All-Ireland titles in the past six years. However, staying on top of Hurling's greasy pole is getting more and more difficult. Our leading rivals are redoubling their efforts and copying our tactics. This has been particularly true of this year's campaign, which has been a heart-stopping roller coaster affair. It seems hard to believe now, but as recently as the last Sunday of May, Limerick were peering over the precipice of elimination from this year's All-Ireland. That day was the closing round of a brilliant Munster Championship, which featured five counties, each capable of beating any of the others. It meant that because Limerick had lost to Clare and only scraped a draw against Tipperary in previous rounds, our very survival was on the line when we played Cork that day. In one of many fantastic games in Munster this year, and with Cork's fate also on the line, the two teams went at each other hammer and tongs serving up a breathtaking clash on a sweltering summer's day. It was brilliant stuff, and when the final whistle blew, Limerick had prevailed by the narrowest of margins, a single point. As good a hurling match as I've ever seen, wrote Tipperary legend Nicky English in his Irish Times column next day. For Limerick, championship survival was achieved, but it wasn't the only prize won that day. In a totally unexpected twist, Waterford had a shock win over Tipperary and that sent Limerick, instead of the Premier County, into the Munster final against Clare. That match was another pulsating contest. A repeat of last year's final, it had passion, colour and drama and some wonderful hurling, with no quarter asked or given. When the final whistle blew, Limerick had won their fifth Munster title in a row. And you've guessed it, the victory margin was a single point. No wonder Captain Declan Hannan declared afterwards to the media, we're having the time of our lives. That Munster triumph offered renewed belief that our heroes were starting to peak at the right time. The next hurdle was an All-Ireland semi-final in Croke Park two weeks ago against a very good Galway team, managed by the Kilkenny legend Henry Shefflin, the only hurler ever to win 10 All-Ireland medals. So we headed to Dublin with high hopes, 
despite the absence of our inspirational captain who had picked up a serious knee injury. The earliest stages of that game were ominous. Galway began in a whirlwind and after 25 minutes were six points up. Limerick weren't playing badly, but the tribesmen had a clear edge. Gradually, however, Limerick upped the tempo and over the remainder of the game, they outscored Galway by a goal and 18 points to just six points. They finished with their biggest winning margin since early last year and over the course of the game had 12 different scorers. The team was humming again. Afterwards, a delighted manager, John Kiley, described them as a fantastic bunch of men, while the losing Galway manager was generous in his praise. The best players in the country, Shefflin declared. And so to today's final. Our opponents this afternoon are the true aristocrats of hurling. Kilkenny leads the National Roll of Honour with 36 hurling titles and they were the last team to achieve four in a row between 2006 and 2009. But while the Cats put the fear of God in Limerick teams for many decades, they don't hold the same aura of invincibility for us now. It's sure to be another enthralling contest and Limerick are slight favourites in the eyes of many leading hurling pundits. For Limerick supporters, it's the latest chapter in a glorious six-year odyssey. Already this team has achieved legendary status, and further hurling immortality now beckons. But should disaster strike and Kilkenny prevail, there will be no recriminations from Limerick fans. Our wonderful team has given us everything, and owes us nothing. To paraphrase Declan Hannan, we're all having the time of our lives. When protesters took to the streets of France this year to demonstrate against the raising of the retirement age, I wondered what they'd make of the current protocol for GAA inter-county referees who must hang up their cards and whistles having reached the ripe old age of 50. As I'm an umpire for referee Pod O'Dwyer who has reached that milestone, I too have been forced into retirement after 14 years in the job. What began as a way of staying involved in the GAA when I'd finished my own modest playing career quickly became a passion and an exciting new foray into top-level Gaelic games. Our team of officials, Pod, myself and the other three umpires, quickly progressed from underage competition to adult club matches and eventually to the dizzy heights of inter-county competition. Not that we were thrown in at the deep end, everyone starts at the lower levels in our case, the Laurie Marr and Nicky Rackard Hurling Championships. But we made progress, gaining in experience as we cut our teeth in the hurling strongholds such as Arklow, Fermanagh and Dundalk. Improving all the time, we were appointed to our first game in Crow Park for the 2012 Nicky Rackard Cup Final. Since then, the standards and venues changed and we regularly found ourselves in Semple Stadium, Porky Cueve and Croke Park. We eventually ascended through the ranks to officiate at two Munster Senior Hurling Finals and an All-Ireland Semi-Final in 2018. 
A typical match day for us means leaving home at around 10am when the referee picks us up for the journey to the stadium. Great banter and sports discussion shortens the journey, but as we get closer to the grounds, the mood becomes more serious as we prepare for the match by discussing rules, our positioning and possible outcomes or scenarios that might arise, such as extra time or a dreaded penalty shootout. Nearing the stadium, fans in their colours line the way, while we are conspicuous in our regulation black slacks and white shirt and tie. Before the match, the fans' remarks are light-hearted and good-humoured, but after the match, not always so, as 50% of the spectators go home disappointed. During the game, I find it impossible to distinguish any individual comments amid the deafening din of chanting and cheering. The experience built up in the earlier part of our careers is now vital as the assault on the visual and auditory senses that's part and parcel of a big hurling championship match can affect your nerve and decision-making if you're not used to blocking out all distractions so as to direct your full focus on the events between the lines. Apart from adjudicating on scores, I'm also on the lookout for off-the-ball infractions that the referee might have missed. This means each umpire takes a quarter of the field to monitor. The effect of this is that I rarely get the chance to watch the game in the sense that a spectator would, and my concentration is so intense that it's only when watching the highlights later that I can appreciate what happened in the match. I'm also hoping, like the referee, not to be noticed. I want to make sure that any decision I make is the correct one and that when the game is over, I can relax and enjoy my dinner with the others, our only remuneration for our day's service to the GAA. When Pod turned 50 this year, I knew it would be my last season standing at the goalpost in a white coat. In this final season, I reflect on highlights such as the National League final and a wonderful night on the banks of the Lee when Cork played Tipperary in Munster Hurling's version of El Clasico. Our last day as a team of officials, although we were not to know it at the time, was in the GAA's Cathedral, Croke Park, as Galway drew with Dublin in the Leinster Championship. As Limerick and Kilkenny take the field today, I feel regret that I never got the chance to officiate on Hurling's biggest day. But I also look back on my 14 years in the white coat with pride, recalling the thrill of being up close and personal with some of Hurling's finest players as they did battle for the honour of their counties. We started at the same hour of the same day of the same year in the same school. The year was 1974 and that school was St. Patrick's de La Salle in Kilkenny. His name was Brian Cody, the retired Kilkenny hurling manager and the longest serving and most successful manager in the history of Kilkenny hurling. 
Brian and I were teaching colleagues for over a quarter of a century, during which time we got to know each other quite well. Back in 1974, being the new kids on the block, so to speak, and like any 20-year-olds, we socialised together and had our fair share of fun. Accompanied by another colleague, Paul Kinsella, who, unlike Brian and myself, had a car and drove us to the various dances and discos around the county. Indeed, I have a memory of Paul driving Brian and myself with the Lee McCarthy Cup in the boot to a local club celebrating a significant anniversary where Lee McCarthy and Brian Cody were welcomed with open arms. A popular song during Brian's halcyon hurling days was Glen Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy, a line from which went getting cards and letters from people I don't even know. A line that equally applied to Brian, who, thanks to his fame on the playing field, was also getting cards and letters from people, not least females, he didn't even know. I was not jealous, just a little envious. I went on to become manager, as in principal, of the De La Salle School, while Brian went on to become manager for 24 years of the Kilkenny hurling team. Sometimes in my local, I tell my fellow drinkers that Brian Cody, the legendary hurling manager, learned his exceptional managerial skills from his manager, namely moi. They smile at me benignly as well they should. I also tell them that the serious-looking Brian Cody they see on the sideline has a very good sense of humour. Not a man to tell a joke, perhaps, but a great man for the witty repast. Those black and amber days in St. Patrick's de la Salle when Kilkenny reached the All-Ireland final were something special. Corridors, classrooms festooned in black and amber, bunting and flags everywhere, and every pupil decked out in the stripy colours of the Kilkenny cats. And then there were the black and amber days when Kilkenny won in All-Ireland and the Lee McCarthy Cup arrived in triumph to St. Patrick's de la Salle, not just the workplace of our hero, Sir Cody, but the alma mater of Kilkenny All-Ireland medal winners, Philly Larkin. Brian McAvoy, Owen Larkin, Matthew Ruth, Owen McCormack and Jackie Tyrrell. Not much work was done in school those days, but there was unbridled joy in the eyes of every pupil from junior infants to sixth class. An amateur photographer, I have some wonderful images of those days. Hurls being signed, jerseys being signed, but my favourite is that of a newborn baby sitting in the McCarthy Cup. A baby who went on to become not a famous Kilkenny hurler, but a fine, upstanding young man who I am very proud of to this day. Regarding Brian Cody's 24-year-long reign as Kilkenny manager, winning a phenomenal 11 All-Irelands during that period, an elderly friend of mine, a true blue, dyed-in-the-wool hurling follower, once said to me, Jerry, we've won four in a row 
and have surpassed Cork and Tip in the winning stakes. I can die happy. Tell Cody thanks. And I did. And now I too say thanks to Brian Cody, hurling legend supreme and teaching colleague for over 25 years. I say thanks, Brian, for the precious memories. In the meantime, I wish the Kilkenny team and their new manager, Derek Ling, good luck in today's battle against champions Limerick. We left Kilkenny early, just him and me in our blue Fiat Ritmo. I got to sit in the front all the way. We talked about the team the selectors had picked and Cork, our opposition. I was full of quiet anxiety. Kilkenny defeats were corrosive to my soul and the rebels were raging hot favourites. They had gone through Munster like a knife through butter and straight into the All-Ireland final, whereas Kilkenny had been unimpressive in reaching the decider and were serious underdogs. Daddy did his best to reassure me. I heard him, but I couldn't heed him. I didn't just watch the games Kilkenny played. I fell headlong into them. I didn't just see and hear hurling matches. I inhaled them. Watching the black and amber was as close to a spiritual experience as this nine-year-old could have. In the week running up to the 82 final, I had cut out the pen pictures of the team from the Kilkenny People newspaper and stuck them to my bedroom wall. I had gazed at them every night and played the match a hundred times over in my head. Amongst the players on that wall was fullback and captain Brian Cody, a teacher in the St. Patrick's Dedesal School I attended. When we landed in the north side of Dublin, we parked in the lane off Dorset Street and paid a fast-talking teenager the pound he asked for to mind it. We headed through the milling horde, stopping for burgers and then again for sweets, before making it to the Cusick stand side of the ground. There we were hit with the waft of cigarette smoke and the sweat and sound of thousands of expectant supporters. The Cork fans were fun and loud and everywhere. I whispered to Daddy that they looked full sure of themselves. He responded gently that Cork fans always looked and sounded like that, but really, deep down, they were lovely people. We went to the gate of the stand and like thousands of other young lads and girls that day, I was thrown over the stiles with the blessing of the Crow Park ticket collector. We sat in our seat and Daddy introduced me to a famous Roscommon footballer who happened to be sitting just behind us and who signed my programme with good grace. 25 years later, as an army officer, I ended up working for that legendary Roscommon man, Dermot Early, who was by then Chief of Staff of the Defence Force, before his sad and untimely passing. We often bonded about the moment we met in the Cusick Stand in 1982. We all turned and waited for the parade of the players, the anthem and the throw-in. 
The fear of losing slowly ebbed away and I was inside the game, immersed again. Good fortune was with the Cats this September day. Big Christy Heffernan from Glenmore scored two goals in less than a minute, just before half-time, and Cork never really recovered. Kenny won handsomely in the end. My soul was intact. We didn't delay in leaving after Brian Cody raised the Liam McCarthy aloft, just long enough to see goalkeeper Noel Skeen happily eat the apple someone in the crowd had thrown at him just before the end of the game. By the time the four spires of St Mary's Cathedral came into view on our approach to Kilkenny, the ecstasy I had felt at the final whistle had settled into a quieter, deeper joy. To this day, and out of nowhere, the images and feelings surrounding the 82 Ireland Ireland hurling final come back to me, as clearly and as vividly as if the match were played last Sunday. I am back in Crow Park, on Daddy's knee, immersed again in the game we both love. We still go to matches together to worship the beautiful game. Daddy gets the water for train or Kavna's bus to Dublin these days. But sometimes we take the car. And if we do, I drive. And he sits in the front all the way. On this morning's programme, we heard Not Every Man Can Wear a Tea Cozy by Joe Kearney, Back of the Net by Lloyd Mackey, more All-Ireland Glory Beckons for Limerick by Stephen O'Burns. Then we heard Brian Cody, Hurling Legend and Teaching Colleague by Jerry Moran. That was followed by Last Season for the Men in White Coats by John Kelly. And the final piece was the 1982 All-Ireland Hurling Final, A Love Letter by Fergal Purcell. The music this morning, that began with Oliver's Army by Elvis Costello. The Morning Dew by The Chieftains. Then we heard Dreams by The Cranberries. That was followed by Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell. And the final piece was To War, A Jig by Cormac Begley. Sunday Miscellany is produced by Sarah Brinchy and the broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. For more from Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, head over to rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio app or to the programme website, which is rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.